Every week, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn joins Hugh Hewitt to discuss great books, great men, and great ideas. This is the Hillsdale Dialogues, presented by Hillsdale College. To find more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, and Ricochet. America, morning glory to you, evening grace, everyone else. I'm still in France. I did not get back, but luckily I pre taped with Dr. Larry on this first of two conversations about Cicero's on friendship. And I wouldn't have missed it for the world because I like the Romans better than the Greeks. And I'm going to start there because Cicero is a Roman among the Romans, and Cato was really the Roman among the Romans. George Washington. Used to go watch the play Cato again and again and again. Uh, why was that, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College? Why was Washington drawn to Cato? And from there, we'll jump to Cicero. Well, uh, it's a drama. And, you know, that means what, 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 what do they do? Uh, they, put, they take life and they put it in motion. And they can focus and pick and perfect the things they put in motion. So a great playwright can actually show it better than anyone could ever see it. Uh, I mean, Shakespeare's history plays are the greatest example of that, in my opinion, as we have been discussing. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Cato, those, these are statesmen of the Roman Republic near its end, and one of them at its end, one of the Catos, Cato the Younger, you know, who died as a result yep. of his end, and who was a friend of Cicero. And so you get to watch them, and you get to see the situations and how they and, react to them. And, and I bring up Cato because um, the, the dialogue we're about to discuss, Cicero's on friendship, is a dialogue that begins with reference that Cicero makes to a previous dialogue he did on Cato the Older being an old man. And he says, I'm going to do this in a dialogue. Because it's the only way I can get this done. And, and would you explain, I, I've got five pages of close notes on Cicero's on friendship. And I, find, I come to find out that our, our mutual acquaintance and friend, Archbishop Chaput, keeps it on his Kindle. Uh, and and it's, a, it's a good book. It's easy to read, too. It's not Aristotelian in its difficulty. Cicero intended to be understood by Romans of the time he was writing. Other Romans. Roman for the Roman. But why does he use a dialogue as opposed to Aristotle just doing a treatise? Well, uh, for the same reason that uh, Plato did, um, it's, uh, it, it makes them <clears throat> like a drama. Uh, you can set them in a context. Uh, it matters then who the people are who are talking. And, and uh, uh, it's... Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's rich with possibilities. Now, I had to pause at the very beginning, because one of the things I had forgotten is that in the dialogue, Cicero has Laelius as the principal spokesperson. He's an old man, and he's addressing his two sons-in-law, and I'd forgotten that. And I, I, when I first read it, I didn't have a son, much less a son-in-law, or a daughter, much less a son-in-law. I now have a wonderful son-in-law. And you talk to your sons-in-law differently than you talk to your sons. At least I do. Have you found that experience to be true, Dr. Arndt? Yeah, well, I have two sons and a son-in-law, and they're terribly different people, right? And, uh, and you know, see, also, one of my sons is adopted. 
coming home from the army pretty soon. And that, you know, there's, so in other words, they're different people. Now, in one way, we're the same. I'm their dad, sort of. And, uh, <clears throat> and you know, he, but yeah, my, and see, another thing is my son-in-law is very interested in all the same things I'm interested in. And, and my son-in-law is, is a warrior, so we are not, but we like to talk about things. And so when I saw the older Cicero talking to his sons-in-law, uh, Gaius Phanius and Quintus Musius, I, I say to myself, oh, this is intended to teach us how to talk to young adults who have not grown up in our house. That's what I thought. And, and he has to begin by, he explains a lot. What, what do you take of the whole dialogue at the beginning? Because I love this. I could spend weeks on this with you. Yeah, well, it, uh, there's a temptation to read Cicero as the classics light, as, you know, Aristotle and Plato light. Yep. Uh, uh, and, and you're right, it's readable. Uh, and, and uh, you know, Cicero was something none of those three that I named were. He was a tremendous rhetorician at a time when public speech was at a very high level. He's also an attorney. Yeah, I couldn't help that. Uh, a good prosecutor. Yeah. Good, yeah, good he, defense he, and, attorney. And defender. Yep, know. and defender. He was good in the courts. And see, you know, here's, a, here's an interesting thing. It's, it's still like this a little bit. Uh, Cicero would take on defendants that had political implications for all of, you know, friends and enemies among all the great powers of Rome. And so defend a man who is an enemy of a powerful man or to prosecute a man who was a friend of a powerful man was to risk your life, eventually your life, but certainly your career. And therefore there was a new reason for eloquence, you know, to do a good job. And uh, it wasn't like uh, juries back then were not like juries now. Anonymous people chosen, you know, from the citizen body, they were leading people, and they and so yeah, he's when he goes in there, it's emphatically a political uh, performance with all the implications of that term, and Cicero is like John Adams. Uh, John Adams became famous in part because he defended the soldiers who were accused in the Boston massacre in Boston. And he, he proved a rectitude doing that, and he was ever after taken seriously by the British and also taken seriously by Americans because, you know, the mob was running against those guys. And, and, so, and, they, and taken, Cicero was taken seriously in Rome, so seriously that at the end of his life, he's, I think the only Roman who's on good terms with all six members of the two triumvirs at one time and then manages to fall out with all six. The only person he ever completely fell out was with Caesar, though he's afraid of him. But at the end, Mark Anthony had his hands cut off and his tongue cut out and nailed to the wall. So it's a dangerous thing to be a rhetorician, Dr. Arndt. Yeah, and you know, the person who tried to save him was... Octavius, who became Augustus Caesar, in other words, the man who emerged from the death of the Republic uh, and the birth of the empire as the strongest man. And Octavius tried to save Cicero, and he couldn't. Uh, because how, Cicero had taken too many had. bites out of Anthony. That's he just right. he had whipped him too hard. But he was, I want to make sure at the beginning, people must understand, he's not a philosopher, he's a statesman. 
That's a step down from being a philosopher, but he has been in the he's been in he ran the circuit of honors and he ended up preventing the destruction of the republic sooner than it was destroyed with the Catiline conspiracy. He's a great man, but he was also not exactly the most courageous of warriors, as at least as I understand the histories. Yeah, well, he so first of all, uh, who's a philosopher? Uh, it's ambiguous about Cicero. He wrote some things of eternal worth about eternal things. Uh, uh, so, so, but he was a statesman, and that's how he comes to sight. That's how he lost his life. And he did not have a reputation for physical courage. Um, uh, you know, there was a great, uh, the, the successful prime minister of Britain in the First World War was David Lloyd George, a salty little Welshman who, you know, whipped the nation into shape and, of course, great cost of life, they won the war. Uh, he was close to Winston Churchill, uh, and they differed sometimes, too. Anyway, Churchill was known to be a very brave man on a battlefield. And, and David Lloyd George was thought to be a coward. And that changed things some, affected things as, the, as things went on. Uh, and that, you know, it, it can be very significant in your life because, you know, like the people who assassinated Caesar, that's a bunch of soldiers, right? Yep. They know how to fight. And they worked out the tactics of that thing. Uh, who would make sure that Mark Anthony didn't get into the room because he was a fierce soldier, too? Uh, and how they would retreat up the Capitoline Hill, uh, up to the top, and then they'd have a place that they could defend. You know, they were soldiers, right? And Cicero was not that. And, uh, and so... In some ways, they might not take him seriously. And Mark Anthony, you know, was, uh, Cicero would talk rings around him and harm his reputation. And, and, uh, Mark Anthony was incapable of responding in kind. So he just responded in another way. And the final way hands and tongue on the, uh, the Senate House door, I think. Dr. Larry Aaron is my guest. We're talking about friendship, Cicero's on friendship. This week and next, don't go anywhere. There's lots ahead on the Hillsdale Dialogue. Everything Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. Stay tuned. Friendship is on the table. Cicero wrote about it thousands of years ago. Dr. Larry Arn and I are talking about it today because it matters. Uh, Dr. Arn, to set this up, the son-in-laws have approached Lelius, who is missing from a public duty. And they say, we are here because of your non-attendance at the college of the, uh, of the priests. A meeting. I, I, we want to confirm you were sick, right? You weren't just sad because your sadness cannot allow you to skip your duties. Melancholy is not the reason. Now, first of all, is melancholy a bad thing? Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, it impairs you. Yeah, so I think it's a bad thing. I don't think melancholy is a bad thing. We'll put that down. I think melancholy is a, a passing thing that you need to work through. But let's talk about why is he insisting? I wasn't melancholy. I wasn't sad over the loss of my friend. I was sick. Why does that matter? Well, for the, you, by the way, you just agreed with me, if you don't know it. <laughs> uh, something you have to work through, you said. In yes. other words, not a good thing. Right. And that means that Cicero is asserting, I'm not incapacitated by mood 
I just had a physical illness. Yes. And, and having to work through tough things is, is my restatement of that. There are times when you will be melancholy. Uh, it will descend on you and you just have to work through it. But it is a good thing to do it the right way. And Cicero here is having his principal expositor say, I'm not sad. I was sick. So let's move on with it. What can I tell you about friendship? Uh, and he says, nor do I think that anything can happen that will cause a man of principle to intermit a duty. Now, that's a translator's choice. Intermit. I think it just means punt to miss. And it's a high standard, right? You never don't do your duty. Yeah. See, I mean, the spirit of that, see, that's strong, right? Man, Very. Uh, you, the great Tommy Lasorda, manager of the Dodgers, first time he had, he's dead now, first time he had a heart attack, he, when he came out of the hospital, he says, I don't get heart attacks, I give them. <laughs> <laughs> that's very good. All right, yeah. so then, then he moves on to say, look, we're talking about Cato, putting aside everything else, um, how he bore his son's death. Uh, and then he talks about all of his friends who bore their son's death as being the hardest thing uh, a, a parent can do. And I agree with him on that. I, yeah. I stand and agree with him on that. But he said you have to do it. Right. If, uh, and see, that, uh, you can't take a thing, you know, the hardest things to bear are things that, you, that, that it would be evil not to take seriously, but also wrong to be conquered by them. And that's, you know, that's the thing, right? You've, you've, got, to, uh, you've got to go on. Uh, I, you, know, uh, you know, you and I are on the threshold of our antiquity. And uh, uh, how are we going to bear that? Right. And, you know, my theory of it is you have to have something great to do while you have life and 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 to retire and not do serious things is death. And, uh, you know, I, I won't be the president of the college forever, but I'll find something to do. And uh, and, you know, I, I'll need to. And, you know, my wife said, or you'll drive me crazy. Yeah, and I've got the same kind of, of spouse, so there's not really an option. Yeah. I do like when he talks about Scipio Aemilius Africanus is the friend that is most often discussed here. It's Laelius's friend. Uh, Africanus the Younger, for the benefit of those who don't get confused. There are two Africanuses. This is the younger one. He says, as for him who's died, who can say that all is not more well? For unless he had taken the fancy to wish for immortality, the last thing of which he ever thought, what is there for which mortal man may wish that he did not attain? In early manhood, he more than justified uh, by extraordinary personal courage the hopes his fellow citizens have conceived of him as a child. He was never a candidate for consulship, yet he was elected council twice. The first time before the legal age. The second time at which, as far as he was concerned, not soon enough being too near the end. He almost had, he had to overthrow two cities that threatened them. He goes on to talk about his loving family, his devotion, and his friends. What could such a man have gained by the addition of a few years? What I find interesting about that, I put it on the web, Larry, after reading it. About whom can we say the same thing now? Well, you know, in recent memory, right now, I don't know. Uh, and we're talking about statesmen, right? Right. And, uh, you know, who's the greatest statesman of our time? Uh, Ronald Reagan. Uh, he's the greatest one I know who was president. Uh, I, I don't think he was Lincoln level, but he lived a good life, a very good life. And uh, his life, I think, became more serious in each passing phase. Uh, and so, yeah. He, and he kept at it, by the way. I saw him before the 1992 convention as he was beginning to slip into the grip. 
And he was still about great things. He never stopped being about great things, even after he stopped being president. Dr. Larry Arn is our guest. We'll be back to Cicero when we return. Don't go anywhere, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt, Hillsdale.edu for all things Hillsdale. Welcome back, America. Hugh Hewitt talking to Dr. Larry Arn about Cicero on Friendship. We're in our series on Friendship, three weeks of Aristotle, two on Cicero. All right, Dr. Arn, the first thing he says, Cicero has him say, friendship can only exist between good men. I do not, however, press this too closely. <laughs> what? Why is he hem- hedging on the first declarative statement? That he doesn't press it too closely. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, it might be bragging. Uh it, uh, you know, he's, he, by the way, this book is a direct act of friendship toward the greatest man he knew, Scipio Africanus. Yes. So it's something, it, 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 it's, it's many things, and it's many things more general than that. But first of all, he's paying a debt. And that means that, uh, according to the classical understanding, which is the correct understanding, in my opinion, of friendship, you need to both be good. Well, if you're describing an awesome human being as your friend, are you making the same claims for yourself? And uh, that would not be seemly. See, uh, you don't. Uh, it's dishonorable to claim honor for yourself. Because uh, for one thing, it means you're putting honor too high. I mean, he, he talks about Coriolanus here, by the way. Yes, he does. Who was a, a man who was simply overcome by love of honor, and it destroyed him. Because it's not the best guide, right? And it's not the best guide because it's too variable, right? It, it, uh, it depends so much on the situation and so much on the people who are paying the honor, so much upon what they're paying the honor for, Whereas, if you just step back from all that, you know, uh, Coriolanus was an incredible warrior. And he went inside by himself, the gates of Coriolanus, and, and, uh, and fought his way back out. You know, it's, it's in Shakespeare's play. Uh, and, and, you know, that's legendary, right? But he, and, you know, almost nobody alive could have done that. Right. Very brave people had never seen such a thing. Then he wants ordinary people to pay him great respect and dignity. And they don't, you know, and why, why would he care about that? Wouldn't just the doing of that be sufficient? And no, he can't be satisfied with that. And so one of the lessons here is that uh, honor, in the end, cannot be the ultimate ground of friendship. It has to be something else. In fact, he spends quite a lot of time on this point, and I'm glad he did. Ian Forster is a, is a fine novelist. I don't know if you care for him, but he's a fine novelist. But he was very wrong about this. He said, if I ever had to choose between my country and my friend, I hope I would have the courage to choose my friend. Uh, Cicero is explicit that that is the wrong choice. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, I mean, it would depend, right? I mean, it depends on the regime, See, that's another thing, right? Uh, like, uh, in the first speech he gave in the House of Commons, uh, Churchill spoke on the Boer War, of which he was a, in, in which he became a hero. And he says, 
if I were a boar fighting in the field, and then he says, and if I were a boar, I should be fighting in the field. And then he goes on, right? And he got hostile letters about that because, you know, people were at a war. Seemed to encourage war, yeah. And, and uh, uh, you know, or to give, you know, credence to the other side. Right. Which, which he did, by the way, about Rommel in the Second World War. Well, he writes one of the letters that he got. He, you know, Churchill's a young man. He's 27 years old. And he writes a letter. And, he, and it, it's just perfect. It's just, it's just Cicero himself could have written it. It says, uh, patriotism is a good and must have its acknowledgement. But there are things beyond patriotism, you see. And that means, you know, that's one reason why we're having this stupid fight about patriotism and whether you're a Nazi if you say you're patriotic. Patriotism just derives from the word for father. Aren't you supposed to respect your father? Yeah, but in the but then there are extreme cases, right? And Churchill, in this letter to this man in nineteen oh nineteen hundred, he writes and he says there are uh, nations which you would not have any loyalty to, even if you were a citizen of them. And and so, you know, in the end, uh, the law is a, a vital good. But it has to be judged to be good or bad by standards that go beyond the law. But I think, isn't it fair to say that the men who run those regimes, like Putin, have no real friends? Because he, he says, what we mean by the good are those whose actions and lives leave no question as to their honor, purity, equity, and liberality. Who are free from greed, lust, and violence. Who have the courage of their convictions. It's like the anti-Putin. That's Churchill yeah, and Lincoln. See, the, the literature... Uh, classic and modern about tyranny starts. It's very like in the you know in On Tyranny uh, by Xenophon, uh, the hero H I E R O. He was a tyrant, and the subtitle of that dialogue is On Tyranny. And he he one of the themes that emerges from it is the tyrant can't have any friends. Right. Right. And that's that cuts you off. Right. Whereas here are these two guys, and they're Cicero and, and uh, Scipio, and they are in a very urgent line of work in which people get killed. And before, you know, it's after Scipio died, but, you know, the leading classes of Rome basically destroyed each other. And they wiped out much of the aristocracy. And that, by the way, is the same thing that happened in England during the Hundred Years of War. Yes, uh, Sulla, who did a lot of that, has on his uh, tomb, no friend did me a favor nor enemy an injury that I have not repaid in full. And the, late, the Roman Republic, the Roman, it's, it's just that. It's all payback uh, against your enemies and favors for your friends. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, and, you know, and, and see, <laughs> I'll stick this in here. It's one of the most important things. We talk about friendship going beyond justice. Uh, Aristotle never describes justice as beautiful. And, you know, that's his highest appellation. Uh, why? Well, it's all about who gets what, right? Dividing up things. Friendship is not concerned with that. The question in friendship is, how much can I give this person? Because this person is awesome, and in some ways, he's me. He's a substitute for me, at least in my better parts. So... 
you don't, you know, a friendship comes away from this question, what's owed? Because in principle, what's owed is everything. But you never, ever, I can recall this, I don't have the note in front of me. The recipient never mentions that which he given, and the receiver never stops acknowledging it. Yeah. That's, uh, uh, and, you know, and, and it's not, see, it, in a way, that's not even the subject matter. No, it just right? is what happens. It, uh, you know, you're not, with your friends, you're not talking about who owes whom, right? The tally is too complex and long since lost track of, right? That's uh, well we said. have a thing at the college, I, I'm the one who says it the most. Uh, I'll always say, you know, somebody did, somebody thinks something great, now later, you know, you, that was a brilliant idea you had. And sometimes the reply will be, that wasn't my idea, it was your idea. And I say, well, it doesn't matter, right? It, and that's, that's the thing, right? When you're reasoning with people, uh, both toward learning and toward action, if the people are friends, it doesn't matter who thought it. It does not matter. When it begins to matter, the friendship is beginning to end. Yeah, that's right. Because, you, you know, it gives you something to quarrel about. Uh, and, I, I, you, know, <laughs> I, you know, I work with people that I'm not unlikely to have a quarrel with, although I sell them. Oh, really? Because I don't <laughs> like it. But most of the people I work closely with, I, I, it's inconceivable I could have a quarrel with them. Disagreements, of course, abound, but quarrels, yeah. not. Yeah, and not, if they yeah. do, they don't last very long, right? Yeah. It, uh, uh, you know, you can, in, in, uh, according to American manners, and I think, by the way, they might even be your universal. Uh, with your friends, the, uh, 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 the, uh, uh, the courtesies don't have to be observed very much, right? Uh, you know, you, they, they can be taken for granted. Uh, and, and because there's so much of a depository on both sides that's been laid aside over the years that you don't. In fact, uh, one of the things Cicero says is it's best if you're about the same age as your friends because you can't get ahead of one or the other that way. You're just, you're kind of at the same place able to give. To set up the next segment, I'm going to tell people that Part one ends, and you think the dialogue is over. But the son-in-laws say, more, more. And Lelia says to them, now you are really using force. It makes no difference what kind of force you use. Force it is. <laughs> For it is neither right nor easy. That has happened to you, I'm sure, a million times. Now you're using force. You're making me teach you. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And that's, uh, you know, just, uh, that's, that's, so, uh in the beginning of Plato's Republic, uh, uh, the first words are, I went down to the Piraeus. In other words, Plato's Republic begins with a descent. But then they're stopped on the road. Uh, they're going back now, I think, as I recall. And the man who stops them is Polemicus. And that word means warlord. Yep. Right. And he says, you have to come and talk to Cephalus. You have to come, right? So they are arrested and forced into the conversation. And that's gently put, but that's how it starts, right? And, and, uh, and then it's interesting that that means in one way 
the conversation is blessed by the powerful, even compelled by them, but then, in a, but then it goes way beyond that. And so if you just think about that series of steps, right, these people in, in, uh, in the Cicero book on friendship, uh, Cicero says, you're making me do this, right? Can they really do that? No, they can't. You know? And, and I mean, he could have shined them on, but they are, it's a gracious way of saying, okay, I yeah. will do it. And, yeah, I, All right, we'll be right back. Dr. Ryan is not going anywhere. We're going to be right back. Don't go anywhere. The Hillsdale Dialogue continues at hillsdale.edu. Get it all. Welcome back, America. Uh, this is the... End of the first hour of two on Cicero's On Friendship. I want to read this to Dr. Arnhem and have him think about it on loud, out loud. He said, no, uh, the most difficult thing in the world, Cicero writes, in the form of Laelius, was for a friendship to remain unimpaired to the end of life. So many things might intervene, conflicting interests, differences of opinion in politics, frequent changes in character, owing sometimes to misfortune, sometimes to advancing years. For while the most fatal blow to friendship in the majority of cases, was the lust of gold. In the case of the best men, it was rivalry for office and reputation, by which it often happened that the most violent enemy enmity had arisen between the closest of friends. What do you think about that? Uh, well, friendship overcomes, you know, those, those things. I mean, uh, uh, Aristotle says friendship binds the city together, right? That's more than justice. In fact, justice is as often divisive of the city. Uh, you know, if you look at the protesters today, anytime probably, uh, they say, we demand justice, right? And that usually means they want something they think you've got and you're holding from them, right? So you're in a contention. And, and, and these friendships break, Cicero says, often because of uh, competing ambitions in politics. Well, he didn't break with Scipio over those things. Well, it's the admonition that I'm worried because you and I both have friends who are in competition with each other for high office and appointments and things like that, the worst thing in the world that would happen to them is for their friendship to fracture as a result of the competition. But yeah, there's no you, way that neither you or I can have anything to do with that. It's up to them. That's right. And you got to, you know, you've got to, uh, you know, we both like Tom Cotton. And uh, maybe one of these days he's got to run for president. And it would be a very hard thing not to help him with that for me. And will I? Almost certainly. Almost is not the same thing as certainly. But he will almost certainly run against Mike Pence and Mike Pompeo and Ron DeSantis if this happens, and they're all friends. Yeah. And what at the end of the Reagan-Bush, this is what I repaired to when I was making notes, at the end of the Reagan-Bush primary, they hated each other. I mean, they loathed each other. And then they went on to work together for the destruction of the Soviet Union. They got over it. Yeah, well, that's uh, see, the story there is interesting, too, because... If they had really been friends, uh, I, I think George H.W. Uh, Bush did some things that Ronald Reagan would not have done. Oh, of course. He raised taxes. And I think he was picked as a 
you know, as a protection against the other branches of the Republican Party, because uh, you, you, you know the story. Yes. Uh, uh, Gerald Ford and Henry Kissinger went to see Reagan at the convention and said, you can't possibly win. You're down 17 points. It's August. But if we join your administration, Henry can run the foreign policy and I'll be your vice president. And, and you know, that was like a, we're going to take over and people a have coup. confidence in us. Right? A quiet coup. Yep. And, uh, and Reagan, you know, I have this story from Don Rumsfeld, uh, the late wonderful man. Don Rumsfeld and George H.W. Bush were waiting by the phone. And in the wake of that conversation, Reagan called George H.W. Bush. And I think that American history would be different if he had called Rumsfeld. Uh, but that's a, you know, that's a hypothetical contrary. But would he have won? H.W. brought along the H.W. Republicans of whom I am one. And I was, you know, I was the last guy on the Reagan train. My friends never let me forget this. I was the very last guy on the Reagan train. I thought I was too old, Larry, just very simply. And, but he got my guy, H.W., so I was happy. What yeah. do you have won with Rumsfeld? Yeah, okay. Well, I, you know, I don't, I didn't see. And the questions are much wider than that. Would Rumsfeld have been any good at it? True. You wouldn't know unless you got to try, right? And he was certainly a very capable man. I would have made a great president. He would have made a great president. You can't uh, see. You don't. Uh, you know, I've been on involved in searches for search committees. Right? It's useless uh, because I, I almost always enter this caution. You won't know till you see him try. And uh, if it's a big job, right? And and uh, it it, it uh, and you find out things about him. Aristotle says, power shows the man, right? So I said once, one time, one of the techniques you do, it's a big job and a lot of people want it, is uh, you uh, look at people who are familiar with the place. Uh, you look at people who have done jobs that are similar. You, look at, you think up a lot of criteria. And I always say, uh, you know, if you take all of those criteria, and meet and, and, and find all the people who meet every one of them, the vast majority of them would be unsuitable for this job. <laughs> I, I agree. Uh, and, and it searches, I would go find their friends. I would go talk to their friends. We're coming back next week with more Cicero America. Thanks for listening to the Hillsdale Dialogues presented by Hillsdale College. For more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, or Ricochet. For more information about Hillsdale College, head to hillsdale.edu.